Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. Please remember that all of the information in this podcast episode is limited to general information only. That means the information is not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So you should seek the advice of a licensed and trusted financial professional before acting on the information. And before you acquire or apply for a financial product, please read the PDS or product disclosure statement, which should be available on the issuer's website. Lastly, please keep in mind that past performance is not indicative of future performance. In this episode of the Australian Investors Podcast, I'm joined again by Seven Investing's Aniaban Mahatni. We're talking Tesla's monster operating leverage, Apple's iPhone growth, Microsoft's blistering quarter, and Alphabet's huge quarter driven by search and YouTube. We also dive into some ASX news, including Dubber's $110 million capital raising. I give you an overview of that business and what we like. And we also talk about Temple and Webster's quarterly report. All that and more on this episode of the Australian Investors Podcast. Yeah. How you going? Good to see you. Good to see you too, man. <laughs> um, so we'll do the usual spiel, which is that people that are listening or watching this can get a hold of us on Twitter. I'm at Owen Rask and Anirban is at A Mahantney. Is that correct, mate? A. Yeah. Yeah. A- it's, it's, no, it's, yep. it's, 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 uh... It's uh, oh, I keep forgetting my own. Uh, it's it's at seven a Mahanti. At seven a Mahanti. That's right. Because um, obviously Anirban is covering global companies each and every day um, that he is working. And what have you been working on lately? Normally we just kind of talk about anything that we've been working on, things that we're producing. A lot of lot of tech companies out in the US, so we'll be talking about them. But anything in particular that's caught your eye or that you're working on behind the scenes? You know what? What, what I'm uh, I can do a little teaser. So I'm working on our August recommendations, <laughs> or or my August recommendation, which I of course I'm not going to name, but yeah, I'm very excited about this one because I think, um, you know, it's again, uh, small cap style company for US or mid cap maybe uh, depends on depending upon your definition, but you know, really fast growth. Uh, really juicy margins and things like that. So yeah, I'm excited about it. And it's an interesting one that I had a lot of fun actually digging into. So So that's what I've been working on. When you say small cap by US standards, like, can you give us a band? Is that less than 50 billion? Is it less than 20 billion? Like, so give us a bit more of a taste. Yeah, 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 I'll give you a bit more. So the standard definition that is used, has been used for many, many years in the US or globally is that two to under 10, between two and 10 billion is small uh, or a mid cap maybe. And be- below two is two billion is small cap. And then anything above 10 billion is pretty, pretty much regarded as large cap. And then maybe hundred billion plus market cap has been regarded as mega cap, right? right? Um, now, the thing I'd like to remind people is if you think about the S&P 500 as the index, and that index has, uh, you know, basically the index marches, in, in this looks like a straight line going up, right, mm-hmm. <laughs> to the right uh, over the long term, right? If you, you know, just blip, you know, you remove the blips along the way um, that are there for, uh, for, you know, various recessions and pullbacks and things like that. But over 30 years, the S&P has probably gone up, uh, you know, I don't know, I mean, again, I'm making up the numbers, but I know the number for 30 years ago. 30 years ago, the average S&P 500 company probably was about seven, eight billion, something like that market cap. Mm-hmm. That is now the average S&P 500 company 
uh, on average is about a 60 or a 70 billion. So there's a 10x kind oh, of, yeah, right. uh, or like maybe somewhere, not, maybe not be exactly 10x, but, you know, several orders of, you know, several multiples, five or six or seven, something like that without, you know, I have a tweet about this, but I don't have the data um, on, on the top of my head. But my point is that if the definition for what was small and mid and mega cap or, you know, large cap um, was made 30 years ago, we should probably adjust for the fact that over time markets become larger, right? Uh, markets grow. Um, and if you expect the market to grow, you should also expect that, you know, companies become larger over time by definition. And, and therefore, and, and the fact, the very fact that companies take longer to go public, right? So it, it makes sense to sort of adjust the definition. So, yeah. I was going to say, um, some of the companies that we're talking about today are measured in trillions <laughs> so, <laughs> so if if a mega cap is a hundred billion, what is a trillion? Um, uh, I, yeah. uh, I don't know, crypto Krypton cap or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Krypton cap. <laughs> yeah, and it's really interesting because yeah. a lot of companies are racing towards that trillion dollar mark. I remember when I think Apple did get there first, although I could be mistaken on the exact timing. But um, I remember when Apple got to a, a trillion dollars, everyone thought. It's already a trillion dollars. I cannot get bigger from here, and yeah. I thought that was really interesting because I I feel like that's just a number that is kind of in my mind it's in in and of itself it lacks context and therefore it's probably meaningless. Like if you think, well, okay, but then how do you relate that to the addressable opportunity and the growth and you know just all of these different things, these different metrics, and you have to put it in context to make sense of it because it's like that. Um, a large number bias, right? As soon as the numbers get big, we kind of shy away from them for one reason or another. Um, but anyway, that's really interesting. Yeah, cool. So um, you're working on the recommendations for Seven Investing. What What's the schedule? Is it the first of the month? Is that when it comes out? Yeah. So the first of the month before market open, basically the, the recommendations come out, you know, probably around seven, maybe around eight o'clock or nine o'clock, uh, typically, depending upon your time zone uh, mm. in the US, the, the, the recommendation would come out, uh, but it comes out before market open um, in the US yeah, right. on, on the 1st of August, which would be for us, uh, I guess, um, yeah, it would be the second here, right? Yeah. So yeah, it would be the second, uh, second sort of morning or yeah. second yeah, or first late night or second morning, depending upon, you know, when you look at them. Mm. Yeah, fascinating. I love that um, Seven Investing is always so prescriptive. The, the team and yourself just have like a, a schedule and people know what to expect. I think that's really good because it's it's kind of transparent in terms of what you get with the subscription. But also for the advisors like yourself who have to come up with these ideas, it, it kind of sets a deadline. Um and it kind of forces you to flex that muscle. Uh, so, to the, so today, we've got a few companies to get through, mate, and a couple of them are very, very, um, how shall we say, in our sweet spot, companies that we love to talk about. So we probably should put a cap on ourselves. Um, mm -hmm. And given that the first one is one that we've already talked about on the show uh, and is super popular, uh, talk about racing towards a trillion-dollar market cap, uh, which mm -hmm. is Tesla. Um, take us through the latest, mate, results, um, anything that's caught your eye uh, and just generally, what do you think? Yeah. Well, uh, Tesla's results, I, I would say were phenomenal. Um, uh, <laughs> and, and, of course. And, and, uh, and I don't know, uh, I don't know whether, whether we should try this or not. Should I, should I try even to share my screen? Uh, that yeah. would be something. Uh, maybe yeah, we can try that. Hey? Let's try a share screen as well. Uh, oh, host has disabled participant share screen. Okay. Uh, that'd oh. be right. 
I knew, I knew, uh, see, see, I knew it was coming <laughs> up and I thought, you know what? I thought, let me disable it. Oh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, okay. Okay. You should be right to go. And for those of you that are just listening to this, we're actually trying to do a Zoom recording. So this is our first uh, attempt. This is, okay. So let's try that. Uh, let's go. Sure. Okay. Uh, here we go. Can you see my screen? Yes. Yeah, I've got you the can financial. see my screen. Oh, yeah. and you got, so I just want to talk very quickly about this one. And I want to talk about the first line. If you look at the automotive revenue um, and you look at the, you know, there's a pink shaded um, Q2 2021 and look at the year over year. Okay, so this is a company that printed $9 billion of automotive revenue. Mm -hmm. That revenue, 9 billion in one quarter was up 97%, okay? <laughs> I love my small caps when they grow like this. <laughs> <laughs> this is my, my common refrain. Um, and then, then you look at the margin expansion, look at the gross margin there. So the margin is 28.4% up from um, 25.4%. Look at that expansion in the margin. This is phenomenal. Uh, I look at the gross profit line and how it has expanded 120%. Um, again, I think what they're doing here is basically the, the gross profit line expanding that quickly or showing that leverage basically suggests that they're you know doing some really good cost mm. management. Um, which is phenomenal. And then the other thing I want to point out is if you look at the um, the operating, you know, uh, operating margins, right? The operating margins have are eleven percent. That's a double over, uh, you know, the prior corresponding period of Q two twenty twenty, right? No more than a double, a little bit more than a double, which is fantastic. Um, the, Even the last quarter, it's almost doubled. Just yeah, over quarter on quarter, right? <laughs> quarter on quarter, it's just phenomenal the execution here. And um, then look at the, you know, if you look at the gap profit, the net income profit, this is one of the lines that the bears love looking at and complaining about so the, the net profit, <laughs> uh, net income line. If you look at it, if you know, I've got it here highlighted uh, 1.1 billion, or if you want to look at the non-gap number 1.6, but let's look at the gap number. It's 1.1 up. One of the favorite things for the bears is to look at that and subtract out regulatory credits, which is 354 million. Well, still profitable, which I find is fascinating um, for, for the company. I, I think this was a brilliant, brilliant uh, quarter for them. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I tweeted out, so I'll uh, try to stop sharing if I could figure out that. Uh, oh, yeah, here we go. Stop sharing. Stop sharing. Okay. Cool. And the, uh, the, you know, the only other thing I want to talk about here is a couple of a few things that they had, you know, everybody's hit by this chip shortage. Um, what mm. they did is they basically substituted, went to a different chip, wrote the new firmware, you know, firmware required for that chip. So, you know, there's a lot of, you know, quick thinking on the feet. Um, a couple of other points to note. They didn't have any advantage from the model S and X that they've refreshed yet in this quarter. In fact, it was actually a negative gross margin for them this quarter. Uh, that should only add to their gross margin going forward. Um, model uh, now China is the exclusive export hub. Model Y is going to be launching in is has already launched in China and is going to be launching in Texas and in Berlin. Uh, model Y is likely to be even more popular than the Model Three. So this company is in you know in a really strong position. A couple other things quickly um, to think about. Uh, they've launched an FSD subscription uh, uh, for the sort of, you know, the full self-driving suite just to make it more palatable and easier for people to subscribe. So that it, they're trying to get this, you know, the services revenue to roll. Um, I think still very early days there. And 
The final thing, which I think is very interesting, is that they're going to they're looking to actually open up their supercharging network to non-Tesla cars. This sounds counterintuitive, but this is very, very interesting because you know, the, you know, saying the, in this question of having adapters in North America, and actually you don't need adapters across X North America because they're actually the same adapters. Um, but you have the adapters, I think. And then the question would be, well, you know, already you have wait times for Tesla cars trying to sometimes in some busy areas to actually use the supercharger. But one of the ways to uh, expand supercharger is to actually make money off it, right? And this is, you know, mm -hmm. one of the best charging infrastructures that exist for electric vehicles is Tesla's. So Tesla is saying, well, we can expand our, our infrastructure really rapidly by opening it up to others to use. We can make money off it. And the way you would use it is via a Tesla app, right? That's bringing those customers one step closer <laughs> to mm. the Tesla experience, right? So, you know, it could be that they're already an EV customer. Maybe they have a Ford EV and the next time they want to buy something or trade in and, you know, they'll probably think, oh, well, you know, why shouldn't I, you know, consider having a Tesla instead of having a Ford? So I think it's very interesting, you know, you know, they're presenting it as, uh, as doing, doing, stuff for sustainable um, transport. But I think there is some business motive here. I think it's, it's like in a Trojan horse type of approach to mm. find, we'll let you do it. Let's see what happens. <laughs> and you know, we'll make money off you. We'll expand our charging network at a rapid pace. Then people will realize, oh, you know, and people will meet other Tesla owners at these charging stations and probably interact and see how cool the Tesla vehicles are. And then, you know, that's basically sales and marketing, uh, Elon Musk style. Um, yeah. Finally, last bit, and then I'll stop. Elon Musk said he's no longer going to be on the conference calls. I think this is a brilliant move um, because he just rambles on the, you know, conference calls are for analysts uh, who want to plug in numbers into their spreadsheets or their models. And he has a really you know, he hates those boneheaded, you know, tell me what I need to put in my model questions. But Zach Kirkon, <laughs> who is the CFO, he actually does a really, really good job of, you know, explaining things properly uh, and, and, you know, and, and doing it in a sophisticated way instead of telling, ah, you, that's a stupid question. Don't ask me stupid stuff. Move on. Right. <laughs> Kirkon is not going to do that. So he said, you know, he's going to, you know, uh, come to the annual uh, meaning uh, be there, but not be on the conference calls. I think this is a net positive. Jeff Bezos never goes to his uh, earnings calls, um, which is which is great. And um, yeah, many people don't. Uh, Steve Jobs never did. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it's you know you, he's probably. How long do you reckon the the CEOs and and executives spend preparing for a quarterly update? Well, I bet some people do, and I bet some people mm. like Elon Musk just you know show up. <laughs> Like, okay. yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. But I bet some people do. Some people take this very, and, and you know, again, some people probably take it very seriously in the sense that, in the, that it is one of their jobs, right? I mean, one of the things that they have to do, do is to communicate um, what they're doing with the company, how the company is performing. So, I mean, you know, it goes, it can be both ways, you know, as, as how much time should you be spending should come naturally to you, you know, are you trying to, you know, pump up the stock or not and things like that. But yeah, mm. I think some people do, some people don't. Um, you said something when you were talking about Tesla there at the beginning, which was about creating the firmware to sit on the chips. Who who creates their chips? Who, who produces them? Yeah, so the, the lot of so the so the, the chips that they were talking about were the, the chips that I'm in short supply have been the seat belt you know, seatbelt has not been put in that, you know, the, the sensor for that, right? Or mm. the airbag sensor, those have been the ones that have been hard to get. Uh, 
So suppose you were using that sensor from, you know, supplier X and you had a firmware that work, wire that works for that supplier X, but that supplier X can't give it to you, but you can get something from supplier Y. Now you need to, you can use supplier Y provided you can write the code that works for that particular chip, right? So multiple, you know, there are hundreds and, you know, you know, there are probably like 10,000 suppliers involved in making an automotive, uh, you know, a, a car, right? Uh, or, or various parts of the supply chain. If you think about all the little things that are, in, you know, from the bulbs to, you know, the plastic to the, uh, you know, the seat belt components and things like that. So, yeah. So, I mean, it could be anybody. Mm. Yeah, because because that's a good, um, I guess, segue into the next uh, company, uh, which is Apple. Um, so, just some high-level numbers: total revenue up thirty-six percent to eighty-one billion, um, which is huge, massive um, for a company at this size. It's just unreal. Uh, iPhone sales jumped fifty percent, which caught me off guard when we were doing a just running over our modeling briefly, Catherine and I, before I jumped on the call. Um, to $39.6 billion for the quarter. Mac sales up 16% to $8.2 billion. iPad sales up 11% to 7.4. Wearables, home and accessories up 36% to $8.8 billion. And services revenue, a huge 33% increase. And I mean, it's hard to look at those numbers and, and think that this like defines something negative. Um, I mean, I, w- I was trying to think about it because this, as we record this, the stock is down 2% after hours. And I don't glean much from market moves. I just find it interesting, like fascinating how um, markets react, really. I don't ma- ever make a decision, but I just thought it was interesting. And the only thing that I could think of that people weren't happy with were probably that they weren't able to provide guidance yet again, and um, which they haven't done for a while. And also, you know, they cited the the chip shortage because in the past, Apple has said, you know, we're we're managing it, we're we're growing, et cetera, et cetera. But I wonder, my takeaway from the the quarter was basically, I think they maybe even underestimated how fast they've grown and how much they've had to fulfill in terms of, you know, you think of all these people working from home, learning from home, everyone's getting an iPad, schools are getting iPads. Um, Then everyone wants an M1, you know, MacBook. I want one. I definitely want one. Um, actually, had put in an order today. So, um, you know, we want IMAX. Everything's coming out now. And then on top of that, we've got this 5G super cycle, the rollout of 5G, the iPhone 12, um, which is huge. And particularly in China, the sales in China are up 58%. And I guess when we were looking at our model, mate, we actually, we jumped into it just before. And um, it was actually funny because we were, we drastically underestimated iPhone. I think when we, it was interesting because when we did our modeling, we did it in October, 2020. That was the last time we did the the proper update for our model. We tend to do them every quarter. We tinker with them, but normally once a year, we'll go back and really dig into it again. And um, when we did it, I think we still, I think this is kind of that recency bias, right? Where you're in COVID and you're forecasting during COVID, you're not fully aware of kind of the bigger picture. Um, and it's probably, you know, an issue on our end, but fortunately we still thought it was undervalued, even though we had very conservative estimates and it's come out and beat that, um, gross margins up because of services revenue, um, subscriptions up to 700 million. This is a business with over 1 billion iPhones in circulation, lots of upgrading, lots of switching going on. I just feel like there's no, I feel like it's at this time, it's almost like there's no end in sight. Maybe, um, 
I was hoping to actually ask you a technical question, if you don't mind, which is around, um, and I was trying to explain this to the guys earlier on, which is around why the iOS architecture, so basically the operating system and how it runs is actually superior to other architectures. Um, do you have any insights to share there? Yeah, so I mean, I wouldn't, okay, so I wouldn't call the architecture, like if you think of the operating system as such, um, so all of these, um, this the iOS and Mac, they have their roots in sort of the, the in the BSD Berkeley Unix system, mm. right? Um, so you know that that has really stood the test of time, right? So in terms of the core architecture value, I think that re and I wouldn't say that the Android OS is inferior. I would I say it's great. I think the reason I think iOS works really well is the very tight coupling between hardware mm. and software, right? Yeah. So like, for example, the way the secure kernel works, you can't make that, like, you know, by basically saying the certain code can only execute in this particular chip in this particular way, that's hard to do if you write, you know, code that um, is kind of like open sourced and then everybody else is porting it and then making it work for them, right? You know, because the underlying architectures then is, is different. So because of the tight hardware software um, integration, they can do certain things that are harder to do otherwise, right? And then the other thing that really works well for iOS, and this is underappreciated, is the, so, and this is an attack point, right? So the, the walled garden approach, the walled garden approach is you, they don't approve every app and you can't sideload Right, so you can't sideload as in you, you as in sideload as in you can't basically download an executable and run it on your iPhone without jailbreaking it, right? And what that what that does is every app basically is approved, which means malware entry is really really hard. Like you really have to be a sophisticated malware you know developer to you know for you to evade Apple's malware detection. Then you know because you know the way things would otherwise happen is that you know somebody would download something, they would share it, you know, that would cause somebody to share something with somebody else and then it kind of spreads, right? You, you so it's I think those decisions um, so this is I would say design decisions decisions to some you know systems decisions combined with design decisions that have made it what it is um so that, that would be yeah. my that would be my view on on sort of the architecture as a whole and that's what i mean um you know if you look say with the new m1 chip right um and a lot of we have a lot of adobe users here um and so yeah it's a company we've recommended before adobe it's a brilliant business but even a, they, almost every creative has an imac or a macbook right because it looks good. Like you said, it actually looks good. So aesthetically, it's better, but it also tends to run really well with essential software, particularly with like the GPU and whatever. And um, basically when the M1 came out, uh, Adobe was kind of scrambling to make sure that they could meet the standards because they knew a lot of their users would be upgrading to new Macs, which in turn meant that their software had to run on that. And, you know, a Apple has its own its own program, uh, Final Cut Pro, which is an audio-visual um, editing software as opposed to Premiere from Adobe. And um, it's interesting just to see how the different pieces of software run, right? Like everything's really fluid on, on an iOS device because it's native. And I think that's underestimated. I personally think that when you look at the services revenue of the business and, and just the way that the, you interact with it, an iOS device, I think that that is going to become more pronounced over time. I think 
that ecosystem is getting stronger as time goes on, like far stronger than people realize. And that's basically the basis for us forecasting much stronger services revenue growth into the future because, you know, the saying, once you go Mac, you never go back. And um, I think in this instance, you know, um, this is great results. I don't expect them to keep chalking up this type of growth, but in short, very, very happy with it. Um, another company, mate, which we want to just maybe just touch briefly is Microsoft. So um, people will know Microsoft at another, another, another operating system business, but also Azure Cloud Compute, um, Xbox, uh, Windows, um, you know, Office 365, LinkedIn. It's got so many things under its hood. I think it owns GitHub now, if I'm not mistaken. You might know that. Yep. Yeah. Um, so, so many things under its hood, just top line revenue growth of 21%, $46 billion, uh, operating income of 19 billion, up 42%, net income 16.5 billion, up 47, EPS $2.17, uh, up 49%. So, fascinating day. Um, Satya basically put it down to cloud, just cloud adoption, the whole the whole stack basically of 365 and Azure just, just driving home growth. It's just as simple as that. I often think, mate, when I dial into one of these calls, you know, these investor calls, I just think like as an analyst, I just think this is, these are just such impressive businesses, just behemoths. You can't, it's almost like you can't stop them. Um, I'm trying to find a reason not to own them and it's very, very difficult. I don't know. That's just my big takeaway from tuning into these calls. Yeah, I, I think uh, what I'll say is that one thing that has happened during, I guess, during the pandemic is it has sort of further strengthened these businesses, right? Because, mm. I mean, they're ba basically, you know, if you look at, for example, Apple's growth in China, right, there have been so many new entrants to the Apple ecosystem, right? You know, they're, they're quoting some numbers, like the 85% of, uh, of the Apple Watch, you know, sales in, mm. in China, for example, were new Apple Which uh, Watch. Which is huge. Uh, which is huge, right? Because huge. once you enter the enter the ecosystem, you're going to use you something in. else. Yeah. You are in, um, and it's just so. In in many ways, you know, the it's very interesting because Apple is a tools company, right? It provides tools and services. It wants to get out of the way, be in the background. Yes, it wants to, it to be look beautiful, but it wants to provide something that gets jobs done, right? And people needed these things. You know, people needed to exercise. People needed to you know monitor their blood oxygen level, right? You know, I think the blood oxygen level uh, in the ability to measure that it was pretty interesting because it was, you know, during the COVID times and you needed to know that if blood oxygen level fell, well, you probably have a problem. So I think all of those things are, um, you know, just an indication of the promise and power of these businesses going forward. And, you know, consumers love them, right? I mean, whether it's Microsoft or, yeah. or Apple, you know, you, you know, if you like, love your Xbox, you love it. <laughs> That's what it is. And, you know, if, if you're on a zero, you're on a zero and you're going to not likely, unlikely to churn out of it, right? I mean, so many healthcare businesses, for example, are on a zero. Um, yeah. And mm. uh, same thing with Microsoft Exchange. If you're using Microsoft Exchange, well, it's unlikely you're going to switch out of it. Or if you're on Office 360, you know, um, are you going to get out of it? Probably not. So mm. I think, again, extremely sticky. And, um, you know, just, I guess the main, I guess, the, you know, what is surprising is they, they, you know, they were already pretty powerful and, you know, well embedded, well entrenched. They became further well entrenched. And it would probably not be surprising to see them becoming even more well entrenched, right, as more and more people go digital. Mm. I um, I don't know if Tesla was included this in this list, but I read a, an article from CNBC, I think it was this morning, 
And basically that the, the big tech companies that are reporting this week account for around about 18%, I think it was of the S&P 500 in terms of market cap or something like that. And these are businesses that are growing so fast um, and still just getting more and more valuable. I was saying to Kevin, our analyst here before that, you know, regulation is probably the big risk, right? Whereas in the past, we talk about oil and gas companies. We talk about in times gone by, there'd be rail companies, all these different things, right? Nowadays, you talk about Google and you say how powerful it is and how profitable it is, which is one of the companies we're going to get to next. But then you think about even Microsoft, Apple, Tesla, all these companies, the way they communicate, it's not, people don't hate them for making money, which is, which is interesting. And they can also kind of intercept the news flow, right? So they can have an influence at a scale that's probably never was 20, 30 years ago was never thought of. So it's a fascinating thing. Speaking of, um, I, I maybe because we've talked a fair bit about this stuff, I'll maybe go over Apple pretty quick. Uh, sorry, Google pretty quick, aka Alphabet. Um, so just some higher level numbers. I think I've got them in front of me here. Yeah, so here we go. Um, obviously, just incredible growth yet again. 62% change in revenues year over year. Um, to, to $62 billion and popping the hood on that, of that $62 billion, 36 is Google search, $7 billion from YouTube, which I believe was up over 80% year on year. Uh, the Google network, um, other like so websites and that type of stuff, $7.6 billion in revenue, up from $4.7. Uh, Google other, uh, $6.6 billion, up from $5.1. So that includes hardware and things like that. Um, we've got Google Cloud, which includes, for those of you who are on it like we are, uh, Gmail, Workspace. It also includes their public cloud computing um, layer, which is GCP. Um, that rose from $3 billion to 4.6. And Ruth Porat, who is the CFO, said that that's where they're spending a lot of their money. That's where they're recruiting into engineering and product, uh, spending a lot of their focus. So um, maybe a lot of people don't know this, but basically under the, under the hood, while those numbers sound fantastic, those businesses are still scaling. Each of those segments, with the exception of search and advertising, which is their core, you know, Google advertising business as you know it, the others aren't profitable um, at the operating income level. So no profits there at all. Um, basically using the huge margins from search to plow back into the other business lines. Um, I really like Google. I, you know what was interesting, mate? Um, I was sitting, it's early morning here in Australia when you're, um, when you're tuning into the live call, I think it was around about 6.30 a.m. our time. I got up a little bit earlier this morning and listened to the last quarter's call before this quarter's call just to, to refresh my mind and also just get familiar with what management were talking about last quarter. And I listened to them back to back. And I thought this is just a bit of a quirky thing. You talked about dud questions from analysts. Um, and not that it was a dud question, but I actually find it interesting that the same investment bank and the same analysts asked the same questions in the same order as last quarter. And they asked them <laughs> to the same people in the executive team, which I thought was very, very interesting. And I didn't, I thought this, surely this is a plant, like surely something's going on here. Um, and I was trying to think for myself, why do they like, is this, is this some sort of political game? Like IG Baji, like who gets to say, ask the first question. I feel like it must be on these analyst calls. I don't know. I, I, I thought on the analyst calls, you have to basically do star one and get into the queue, right? And maybe there's like a, um, you know, race to be the first one to ask the first questions and whatnot. But yeah, that's pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, this one, uh, in this instance, it was Morgan Stanley. But um, I, I just find it funny because I feel like I've heard stories of companies, you know, you have the operator that 
kind of sits between the company and the, the people calling in. I, I've heard stories in the past of um, companies actually blocking questions from certain analysts or from certain places. Um, mm-hmm. Not saying that this happening in this situation. I don't think it's necessary like, you know, just everyone line up and get an order and whoever's you know, first come first serve. I feel like there might be a little bit of kind of, um, yeah, picking from the crowd who they want to get the questions from. But um, like you said, I think you can get it a lot from things outside of analyst calls, right? Like, you know, developer conferences, um, product roadshows, those types of things. I think those are, for these companies are probably more valuable than the quarterly calls because they're all interested in the next quarter. And as long-term investors, most of us listening to this, we don't really need to think about that too much. Um, how about, mate, we've talked about chips and, and that type of stuff. How about closer to home here in Australia? Have you has anything come across your desk that you found interesting? Um, no, well, I haven't really looked very carefully. Um, other than mm. what I saw, I saw that Temple and Webster had uh, uh, some really strong results, and um, yeah, that, that's you know, and and I, I also read that they had some issues with logistics in terms of you know shipping, which everybody else is having. But that's mm. the only one that I have seen in terms of um, sort of results or reports, you know, four Cs and things like that. Um, yeah, I haven't actually looked very carefully of late recently, but I'm going to, I'm willing to hear what you have seen. Yeah, well, I was just looking, just glancing over the Temple and Webster thing. So for those of you who don't know, Temple and Webster is an online um, home homewares and, and um, furniture retailer. So um, revenue up 85% year on year to 326 million um i feel like two years ago i wouldn't even have thought i would have thought of temple and webster go shopping at but since covid this is a business that's really like we we bought something the other day we bought a bed frame from temple and webster it came on time everything was perfect it was a great price it's a good product um and i feel like the game has changed for a lot of these e-commerce players i know we talk about like the covid kind of pop that companies have kind of got the shot in the arm from from COVID pushing everyone alone. But I feel like some of these businesses, like there's no reason for me not to shop on Temp- Temple and Webster for these types of products. So it's a really interesting business, not one that I own, but um, in terms of news around around the interwebs, um, probably the one, uh, maybe I'll start with a cheeky one, which come from Comsec. I logged into my account um, yesterday and I saw that Comsec, there's a, there's a little site news thing at the top of the Comsec homepage. I'm not sure if you've ever been on it, but I never read that stuff. And um, I just saw that there was a, a change to the, uh, to the Comsec's interest rates that you get on cash in your account. And because they have the international account, um, this is the first time I noticed it. I thought, oh, I'll just check it out. Um, and I went in there and I saw the note and it said between 0.8% and 1% is what you'll be charged to hold your euros in a Comsec account. And I thought this was interesting for some of our investors that do invest internationally. It's obviously not anything new in Europe, but I just thought it was interesting that if you did have euros sitting in your Comsec account, you're paying um, if every day that your money is sitting there <laughs> um, a lot. If you think about your account keeping fee, uh, it, it, I don't know, depending on your view on the currency, it might be wise to bring your money back for a little while before you make the decision because that is pretty taxing for a brokerage account. Um, so I thought that was interesting. That was just a little thing. But the the, the company that um, I've been doing a little bit of work on lately is a company called Dubber. Uh, it's on the ASX, D-U-B is the ticket code. And so what does it do? It's it's basically a call recording business. So it, it records calls coming across carrier networks like um, Telstra. So if you say you work at, I don't know, BHP Builder and you're a Telstra customer, you might be offered Dubber's software as part of your compliance. Um, so when your executives make a call, that call can be recorded. 
for quality assurance, for all the different stuff that you want to do. But it also can be used in things like customer service. So if you call customers regularly, if you're in the financial services industry, or if you're in an insurance business, you'd like to have those calls recorded for quality assurance, but also for like advice regulations and all that. And what Dubber software can do is what they're building out is AI effectively to run over the top of that. And so it does things that like looks for keywords. So it might look for things like, you know, words that associate with being angry or really annoyed or frustrated, things like if you said frustrated on the call, that would be a negative sentiment indicator, for example. And um, an alert would pop up and say, this week, it looks like um, our customers are more negative. So an example of that might be in the airline industry when flights get canceled, uh, conversations tend to skew negative. But what some customers tended to do as well during COVID is when they had airline customers is they also gauged the sentiment of their employees who were making these calls and taking these calls. And that's um, a really powerful insight. And basically the way Double works is um, it rolls out via carriers or these, these partners, but it also is now moving into um, you know, over-the-top type products like Zoom, uh, Microsoft Teams, WebEx, these types of things like we're on Zoom right now, you can actually go into the Zoom marketplace and find Dubber and have that as an add-on. And so this is an exciting frontier for the business. And the business has been growing really quick, but in short, why did it pop up on my radar this week? Uh, well, it's making $110 million capital raising. And in the context of a 700 mil market cap, it, it, yes, it's big, but it doesn't sound that big. But when you compare it to its revenues, it's humongous. And they haven't actually, as far as I know, at the time of recording, they haven't actually decided what they're going to do with it. Um, I think they're raising capital without, <laughs> they've, got this, they've got this chart in one of their investor presentations, which effectively shows four network effects basically layering on top of each other to show exponential growth, I guess. And they've got, a, I think it's a $100 million revenue AR target. And then the business is growing really fast on the top line, but obviously it's going to translate to profit sooner or later. And I think my questions as I do my research are just around that. How does it get the operating leverage? You know, like we saw with Tesla at the beginning there, it's getting the IRR, the annualized recurring revenue, but where does it go from here? So anyway, that's Dubber. I don't know if you know much about that, but it's an interesting little business. Yeah, I don't. I know a little bit about Dubber. Um, it's a couple of things I'll say about uh, Dubber. One thing to keep an eye on, so is, you know, the analyzed recurring revenue. So let's say you're doing $40 million Australian, um, growing that, let's say, 200%. That's pretty quick, right? Because that mm. can effectively, you know, um, you know, you could triple <laughs> very quickly next year, right? Uh, to 80 million, if you can maintain that growth. My main thing with the, you know, if you're investing in a company like Double, you're basically taking, in some ways you're making this bet that they would be able to transition to sort of, you know, 100 million plus and then still continue maintaining, you know, continue and maintain that growth rate. Um, in for a subscription business, typically 100 million in revenue is really like a is a, kind of like a tipping point in many ways, right? So, um, yeah. Other than that, I think the interesting thing for for them is this recording, the ability to record without hardware, right? Mm -hmm. So, so this is what they're replacing really is like you know, so let's say you're Qantas and you had your own IT infrastructure in which you were recording calls and things like that. 
they must have gotten a bit of a COVID bump as well, right? Because, you know, as people sort of moved to taking calls at home, um, how do you sort of, you know, route those calls back into your IT infrastructure for recording versus, you know, it's much easier to use something like a double or two recording to the cloud, right? So I think they must have gotten COVID bump, which is, you know, really, really useful thing to have because that causes that step change in, um, in spending that businesses need to make, to buy and license the software and sort of use it. So I think it's an interesting, very interesting business at, a, at an interesting growth rate. Um, it's always a little bit of a question mark as to when you raise $100 million um, of capital without really outlining what you intend to do on a 700, 800 million, whatever is the market cap. Uh, it's a fair bit of dilution as well. Mm. Um, but the share price looks like, you know, it's, it's as close as, <laughs> as high as it possibly can in terms of, you know, uh, to do quantitative easing, right? If you want to do quantitative easing, this is when you want to do it. <laughs> you don't want to do. <laughs> so, so any, <laughs> so, so I call this the quote, it's just, this is, a, you know, this is, you know, for my time looking at small caps, this is very common. Actually, it's not even common for small caps. This is quite a common strategy on the ASX, which is, which I call the quantitative easing on the ASX. This is not a small cap only strategy. There are, uh, you know, <laughs> other companies which regularly uh, do this, you know, uh, and play the arbitrage game. Um, so, and they've learned it from the reserve banks, which is, which is really cool. But uh, again, I think this can, this business can be profitable, right? Because it's a fairly asset-like business, mm. right? It's a pretty asset. Like you build the software, so some specific costs for running the software, some improvement costs, some storage cloud costs you've got. You, it, there should be operating leverage in this business at mm. scale, and and it's growing quickly. So I mean, actually, yeah, I quite like this business. Mm. I do too. For the ASX, I think like the, the question mark if you're in into valuations is how much is it worth? Well, um, when the business is growing <laughs> this fast, um, like it's, it's a wide range of variables that go into that. So. Um, yeah, I just got the the doc in front it's of me 20 here. Twenty times, I think it's like what eighteen to twenty times sales, which is very high mm. <laughs> mm. price to pay. Um, at, yeah, yeah, but, it is. Um, but so the the four uses of its capital that's kind of laid out, but it hasn't been concrete. Normally, when you see a hundred million dollar capital raising, it's to make an acquisition. But they've said here the four things are significant and growing. Tam, these are the four layers. Foundation partner program. So they've just had a. Um, a, a really interesting deal with WebEx, um, which they need to expand. Um, they're going to put more solutions into the universe, including um, investing in its AI and data sets and, and growing those types of, I guess, just the coding and developer effort there. Uh, and then strategic and accretive M&A. They have, a, they have made um, two acquisitions in recent times, which one was small, but um, I think it was spec in the in, in the UK, which is an interesting one. And so, so there's definitely like uh, some track record there with M and A. It's not necessarily just all for nothing, but um, an interesting company for your watch list at least. Um, there was another thing before we get maybe to the final thing, which would be two stocks to watch. Um, last week we talked about um, COVID. Uh, as we record this, Sydney's still in a lockdown. It looks like it's going to be for quite some time. Sorry, mate. Here in Melbourne, first day out, we're out and about. I'm recording from the office. Um, do you have any updated thoughts to share on this? Um, well, again, you know, vaccination is a race, <laughs> is, mm. is my only thought. And, uh, you know, it would, it would help if vaccinations were there. Um, it looks like, I mean, the, so the only thought I would like to put out, and I've been saying this on, on, on other calls, is, you know, one of the things that people say, oh, look at all those people with, uh, with vaccinations who are admitted into hospitals, right? Um, 
I think that is there's a little bit of a statistical fallacy in, in going on there. Right? If you look at the people who are admitted into hospitals right now in in say, New South Wales, for example, most of them are unvaccinated, right? Um, and you see a skew towards the younger population because the younger population has not been vaccinated, right? And then you see some people who haven't gotten the vaccine for whatever reason uh, there may be. The, the other side of the story, though, is that if you look at, if you have a country with 100% vaccination, then all the admissions are going to be of people who are going to be vaccinated, right? So what you really need to now think about is, well, how many people are admitted and how many people are dying? And so, if you know, you compare that with uh, other standards, I guess, of, uh, you know, seasonal viruses. Once people are vaccinated, how does this compare with things like that? So I think that there's a little bit of a nuance here that needs to be understood in terms of just interpreting the numbers. But it looks like UK is has is okay thus far, and mm. look is looking increasingly okay. America is mostly open. Uh, Canada has announced. I don't know if you talked about this last week, but Canada has announced that they're gonna, their borders with the uh, with the US are opening next month, and then the borders to the world are opening the following month. They're at about eighty percent vaccination. And I think the easiest way to increase vaccine coverage is to actually expand uh, the usage uh, or the range of range of people who can have it. So if you go from 12 plus age wise, you've just expanded coverage. You know, we know that, you know, uh, uh, children who go to school are carriers, all sorts of things, because they mingle with lots of other friends and, you know, uh, and children have great immunity. So they don't get affected by anything, but they can bring it home, which can then affect someone at home, then they can bring it to give it to somebody else. So, um, yeah, so, I, you know, I'm generally positive about, you know, I'm very positive about what science can do. And I think all the vaccines that are out there are good, you know, some may be better than the others, but they're all good in terms of, uh, in terms of what they do in terms of provide in, in terms of preventing, um, you know, serious um, health health issues and in terms of preventing death they're all really really good vaccines at least mm. that's what the data suggests so mm. yeah yeah hospitalizations in the U- uk are still significantly lower than where they were in the past so um even though you know they're still recording many thousands of cases a day as you said last week hospitalizations well down so um, I guess that's that's really good news and and great news about Canada too. Um, yeah, we actually got some feedback on Twitter about this, so um, that was kind of a rational conversation about COVID and Delta and basically how to invest in it um, or through, out of it. Uh, if you are if you want to learn more about that and you haven't listened to the latest episode, you can go back a week and, and listen to our chat then. Um, so finally, uh, actually, there's a little message here that I, I might read out because it was it was kind of nice. It's written by Patrick, who's a listener of the show. So. Um, hey guys, loving your new podcast. Uh, the focus on stocks and types of stocks and personal views and contrast of ideas is great for an intermediate investor with growth such tech leanings. Uh, he's given us a bunch of ideas to run through, such as IPOs, MA, things like uh, Woolworths and Endeavor, Pexa, uh, Licks, uh, like the Balador Lick and Tech, Thorny Tech uh, Lick, PPK, uh, which is an upcoming IPO. So this this is a great message from Patrick. Patrick, if you're if you're listening, I, I bet you are. Uh, thanks for writing in. If you want to reach out to us, you can do that via Twitter. Uh, it's a great medium to engage and, and follow along and have a bit of a chat. I think we had some other listeners join us on Twitter during the week and said, oh, you guys are actually talking about um, everything that you spoke about on the podcast. And yeah, we love it. So uh, come, and, come and say good day. So, you know, in closing... Um, if people want to get your recommendations and see what which companies you're you're recommending every month, how can they do that? 
Well, go to sevinvesting.com, you know, forward slash subscribe, uh, use uh, Rask's code, get $10 yep. off um, uh, to join. And yeah. And, and how about, you know, how can people join Rask? Well, yeah, um, there's like like Seven Investing, there's a link in the show notes. So you can head to rask.com.au. So yeah, both of us would, would love to have you on board either of our respective services. So um, yeah, you can find out more you know, on those sites, but you can also just find us on Twitter. Uh, we'll have links in the show notes. So you can follow along um, like Patrick did. You can write into us and, and, and share your thoughts. Uh, we do actually love hearing from you. We're not just hiding behind the camera or the, or the microphone. We love hearing from you. So, and Twitter is just a great place to do that. So yeah, we look, we look forward to hearing from you. And if you, if you are a bit wondering if you're right, if you're driving, listening to this and you're thinking, what were they talking about sharing screens? It's um, because <laughs> we're actually doing this via Zoom and we're trying to, sh- to share a screen with one another and put it onto YouTube. So um, you have to just be patient with us, but um, hopefully this, this will go out in video form or at least the future episodes will. So if you like that format too, if you want us to share our screens, maybe I can come on here in the next few weeks and sit, share some models too. I'm happy to do that. So um, mate, as always, a pleasure. Thanks for taking some time to join me. Pleasure is mine. Thank you.